Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. I'm Christina Namath, Director of Commonwealth Club Travel. Welcome to today's program, On the Road to Freedom Through the Eyes of Young Leaders. I would like to give a special welcome and thanks to those of you joining that donated to the club's travel scholarship program, in particular, the Gruber Family Foundation. Our scholarship fund started in 2018 and has allowed us to send recipients on our civil rights trip in 2019 and 2020, and we intend to provide future young scholars educational and transformative travel opportunities. Now, I'm pleased to introduce our moderator for today's program, Dana King. Dana is an artist who brings humanity to the African-American story. Black Art in America has identified King as one of 10 emerging Black female artists to collect. King's public sculptures include Guided by Justice, located at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. It was a profound experience to visit the museum and memorial created by the incredible Brian Stevenson in the company of Dana, who served as the trip discussion leader. Prior to molding a career as a sculptor, King was a broadcast journalist. Her work received five Emmy and two Edward R. Murrow awards during her 25-year career, covering news in the Persian Gulf, Middle East, Central America, Eastern Europe, as well as here in the Bay Area while working at KPIX-TV. Please join me in welcoming Dana King. Thank you so much, Christina. Hello, everybody. I am so pleased to be with you for this Commonwealth Club program. And this afternoon, we are going to hear from two amazing young women. Ashley Hayes, a senior at the University of Michigan, and Zainab Abdul-Kadir Morris, who is a graduate of UC Berkeley. These two exceptional women were part of the organization in the Bay Area called Cinnamon Girl Inc., which mentors and provides leadership opportunities to young women of color. Now, I'd like to share just a little bit about them before we get started. Zainab is a recent UC Berkeley graduate in African American Studies. She was also the student body president during her time there. Ashley is currently an Afro-American and African Studies major with a minor in Education for Empowerment at the University of Michigan. Welcome, Ashley and Zainab. It's so great to see you both again. Now, I traveled with Ashley and Zainab and about 30 other people uh, as part of the Commonwealth Club group tour in early March to the U.S. South. We visited sites critical to the civil rights movement and met some truly inspirational people. Now, here's a little bit of background about our journey. We started in Jackson, Mississippi, where we visited Medgar Evers' home. We went to the Mississippi Delta and sat in the courtroom in Sumner, Mississippi, where Emmett Till's murderers were acquitted. We went inside Little Rock High School and heard from Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine, and into the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, where we met with bomb survivor, Reverend Carolyn McKinstry. In Memphis, we visited the Civil Rights Museum and saw the room at the Lorraine Motel where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stayed the night before he was killed. And then we walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. We ended in Montgomery, where Rosa Parks and many other women inspired the Montgomery bus boycott, and where we experienced the deeply moving National Memorial for Peace and Justice. 
there were, of course, many things that we did and saw, including eating some really great food and listening to some incredible blues music. But that gives you a sense geographically where we traveled. And we were also traveling during a time when COVID-19 was just becoming a reality in this country. Our trip also started just two weeks after Ahmed Aubrey was murdered while jogging. We walked across the bridge in Selma the day that Breonna Taylor was murdered in her bed. And it was two months before the murder of George Floyd. So a lot happened on our journey and since our journey. So we're going to start this afternoon um, by hearing from Zainab Abdul-Kadir Morris. She is going to share some images and thoughts about this trip that, was, that were impactful for her. And then we'll hear from Ashley Hayes. And then following that, we will have our question and answer period. So if you're watching along with us and have a question, and that a question you'd like me to ask, just put it in the text chat in your live stream, and then we'll get to it later on in the program. So I'd like to first start, it, start by turning it over to Zainab. Thank you, Dana, uh, for a beautiful introduction. I'm pleased to be talking with you all today. I'd like to thank Cinnamon Girl and the Commonwealth Club for the opportunity to join the Understanding the Civil Rights Movement trip. Uh, it was an incredibly transformative experience. I'll always be grateful. I would like to start with a pause to acknowledge all victims of policing in America and abroad, those named, those nameless, those who survived, those protesting every night uh, throughout the pandemic. I also want to lift the voices and the names of the Indigenous nations whose stolen land we traveled on throughout the trip. Every time I've started to drop my presentation for today, attempting to articulate what it was like to tour the American South, tour trauma, tour poverty, tour afterlife of injustice, I couldn't help but be swallowed by sorrow. It's a type of sorrow I felt six years ago sitting on the carpet of my childhood bedroom, unable to concentrate on packing shirts away for my first semester of college because I could only stare in futility at Trayvon's face against asphalt, a deep red pooling from his head to city gutter. It's the sorrow that shouted over me throughout my first semester of college, a sorrow that led me into the streets of Berkeley and Oakland night after night screaming from the cavity of my chest that my life mattered. After a hot-blooded first year, I decided that I was done with sorrow. I was tired of making my pain palatable for white and non-Black people of color. I made sure to amplify every name, every hashtag in the years following, but I never allowed myself to get emotional, take it personal, already aware of what misery it would bring me. I'll be clear now, this trip was not a miserable experience. What I learned from the lips of those on the front line, the freedom fighters, the wounded healers, is invaluable. Every day, every city, I was inspired. The grief the trip triggered was and is an unavoidable pretense of hyphenated tourists, our price for trying to find answers in ancestral homeland. Thinking back on Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, Alabama, I am still uncertain. Uncertain about the dilapidated structures, the persisting erasure of women, trans, non-binary leaders, the commodification of movements, and yet the necess necessity of spectacle. I still feel some sorrow too. 
I'm only certain that my departure was premature almost, that I needed to go back and caress the southern soil, its dampened aged hardwood, letting the humidity soak through my clothes once more, waiting for an answer, a deeper understanding. To begin, Jane Hirschfeld wrote that poems and writing and art carries love and terror or it carries nothing. I'll be offering both in a series of my recollections um, about traveling through sites of heritage and memory. For me, this trip was not about policy or protest, but origin. I asked Cinnamon Girl to join this trip because of my grandmother, Uli Morris. She was raised in Greenwood, Mississippi in the 1920s. Her parents share croppers. In adulthood, she migrated to California, Compton, where my father was raised. And I kept this in mind all throughout the trip, in which Ashley and I kept journals. We were asked to write how we were feeling so not to forget the experience. I could only ever capture fragments. Atlantic as origin, bra straps slick with sweat, socks also defeated in southern heat, grave digging in daylight, Domestic terrorism, terror proper, more crypt than city, the music still plays here anyway. There are stars here at night. These are from the first two days. On that first day, I woke with Mississippi's morning light immediately reaching for my camera. I hurriedly brushed my teeth, washed my face, slipping on boots, a dress, rushing out of the hotel, determined to discover Jackson, to document and witness the city. I started down the street, City Hall. Andrew Jackson, Jackson, immortalized in bronze, stood tall on a moat, one arm akimbo, the other pressing a staff firmly into the statue's base, still declaring that this was his providence. Brilliant pillars stretched to the hazy sky behind him. Aside from his shadow, Jackson was deserted. There are no cars rushing past, no tour groups crowding to take pictures, perhaps whispering about the general's legacy a bustling plantation of 300 slaves, genocide of the indigenous. It was just me and him. I climbed up State and President Street, hoping to get a closer look at the city, getting near to a tomb. Placard absent, I could only identify its purpose by reading what had been chiseled in stone. CSA, Confederate States of America. The monument honored its sons, their sacrifice. After looking at the monument, I started towards a railroad track, and then a white man suited in buttoned-down slacks waved for my attention. I wasn't sure what type of white southern man he was, but I pulled my headphones down as he approached. He wanted a picture in front of the monument. His grandfather, a Confederate sir soldier serving Jackson, he came to chase that history, driving from one battle site to the next. He continued on to me about his Southern heritage, but I could only think of the Negro soldiers that fought against the Confederacy in their starched uniforms, head high, chest out, freely marching in a scorching April heat, freedom finally clear in the scopes of their rifles, thinking at last, we are countrymen. What a rich history I offered the man, and he started crying, dabbing his eyes with a red, white, and blue tie, freckled with the word vote. I took his picture, landscape, and then portrait to capture the entire monument. He insisted that I also take one. He left to go to a Biden rally, and I walked 12 more miles that day. Drenched in the afternoon sun, I escaped the cool shade of the Capitol's lawn. 
watching the broad polyester body of the state's flag, its southern cross, confederate stars proudly rustling in the wind, its ripple echoing for me and Jackson. On the fourth day of the trip, we drove as dawn emerged across Arkansas's horizon to arrive at Little Rock Central High School. We began with the tour of the school, pausing for a moment at its mouth, taking in the 150,000 square foot structure, a favorite church, rather a school. Looking up from, from the stairwell, we're greeted with four female statues, each dedicated to an educational theme. I could only remember opportunity. She stood there in a flowing gown, two plate braids almost sneering at us below. Hands preoccupied with her dress, unaffected, uninterested on what goes down below. After making our way through the hallways of the school, we crossed the street to the visitor center where we listened to Elizabeth Eckberg and Dr. Sybil Jordan Hampton's testimony about what it meant to be the first. Due to a breakdown in communication, Ms. Eckberg accidentally arrived early on September 4th, 1957 to then be denied entrance to Little Rock's campus at every entrance she approached. She recounted that that day only two people affirmed her humanity wiping spit from her curls and the dress her mother, a seamstress, prepared for her. An education journalist and a teacher served as the only barrier between mob and child, wiping her tears, talking over the litany of curses and threats. They told her, don't let them see you cry. Elizabeth had already thought ahead, arming herself with sunglasses. I began vibrating with anger, hearing about the complicity of soldiers, a city, a country, all children were attacked before cameras, pressing nails into the palm of my hands to hold back tears, hearing about violence in the classroom that stalked in the hallways, bathroom stalls, the tirade, their sacrifice. I could only make out a thank you before sobbing on my knees before Miss Eckberg pictured on the right and Dr. Sybil Jordan Hampton pictured on the left. While taking slow, deep breaths into my elbow, Dr. Hampton grabbed my trembling hand caressing my hair and whispered, I know. On the morning of September 15th, 1963, the day 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed, the pastor's Sunday school message was love that forgives, grounded in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Walking through the restored church and up the carpet and stairs where the clan detonated seven sticks of dynamite suspending Adam A. Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair in the air with torn Bible passages and pews, I could not imagine such a permissible God. Over lunch, Reverend Carol McKistry assured me and Ashley of the necessity of forgiveness, tenderness as well warning us of the consequences of being consumed by vengeance and bitterness, of clutching to hate, closing yourself off to living fully. On our final day, I learned that Coretta was a classically trained pianist. She would open the windows of her parlor, letting the sonatas spill to the streets of Montgomery. Crowds would gather outside her window, marveling at her talent. They still bombed her house, but she kept playing lovingly pressing manicured nails into ivory, leaning head back, curl shifting, thinking, oh glory, oh God, oh glory. 
Later that day, under the harsh sun, we enter the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, Pantheon of the Lynch, a constellation of death perched across atop all of Montgomery. We wandered through its copper columns, each engraved with every date, every name of the victims, requiring curving, leaning, twisting to comprehend the pillars above our shoulders, many reading unknown, unknown, unknown. I was one of the first to leave the memorial. Down the hill, I walked around the corner, only a few feet from the Legacy Museum, sitting in front of an abandoned building. I closed my eyes, trying to concentrate on the rush of a fountain across the street. I opened my eyes to a historical marker. The signs were erected in every city we had visited. This one read Montgomery Slave Market. I shut my eyes once more. The cultural preservation work of the Equal Justice Initiative, the National Park, and even each state's Department of Archives and History was outstanding. It was impressive, but I still could not shake a deep feeling of disappointment to borrow from King while on the trip. It was disorienting to see what endured, to confront ghosts of the past and the living, to encounter aftermath and afterlife of anti-Black racism, America's foundation, and witness it as an imperial spectator. But finishing Dr. King's quote, there can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. It too was endearing to witness a love that endured somehow, that sculpted and erected new sculptures, new literatures, new histories, love dreaming defiantly. In March, on this trip under the southern sky, facing and contending with broken promises of liberty, justice, and equality, I was overcome with a deep disappointment, but I also learned the utility of dreaming again. To close, I'll read from a erasure poem I made with the letter I wrote when applying to join this trip with Cinnamon Girl. Dear Amnesia, child of empire, will I betray us, daughters of pilgrimage, of aftermath, the years inhale, America ignores. I look forward. Thank you for listening to me. I'll now be passing uh, the presentation over to Ashley to talk about her experience. Thanks, Jaynab, and thank you, Commonwealth Club Cinnamon Girl, for the opportunity to be a part of this lovely experience to tour the civil rights movement through our own eyes. I'd like to begin with the quote that reads, for the hanged and beaten, for the shot, drowned, and burned, for the tortured, tormented, and terrorized, for those abandoned by the rule of law, we will remember. With hope, because hopelessness is the enemy of justice. With courage, because peace requires bravery. With persistence, because justice is a constant struggle. With faith, because we shall overcome. Entering a new setting for the first time, my guard is always up. I have to be observant of where I'm at, who I'm around, what my role is in this space. And I was either the only or one of the only in this room. I'm the, only, the youngest person in the room. I'm a black female, the only one from the Midwest, from the Metro Detroit area. And those, those identities overlap with one another in this experience of how I process everything that we took in along this week together. But I always try to take something positive away from my experiences, even though it was uncomfortable at times. We learned about Black history on a deeper level, which was a lot within itself. But Dana framed this trip for you all. Zainab painted the picture for us. And I wanted to share with you what those moments in time looked like for me. 
So I'll set the stage for you. Our group comprised of primarily an older white audience, only two people under the age of 25, and only four black women. Now the entire culture or dynamic of if, if the demographics were reversed would have been totally different for how this trip was experienced by us all. And I have to understand that I want to hear what everyone else thinks, how they feel, and because this gives us a greater perspective of what the world really is. It's much bigger than my own or just how black people feel. Then I think about the black lives that have innocently been lost for centuries, systematically, strategically, spitefully. You see black people being shot and killed by white people, white people being acquitted or not tried at all. Then I understand the hate, the anger, the hopelessness that my people feel regularly, and we haven't been able to shake it. James Baldwin once said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And this trip was painful. Trying to love the people who look like the people who hate me, learning together about the civil rights movement and applying that knowledge today was painful. But it stuck with me the most. My experience compared to that of the travel group was transformative. Ideas were challenged for me, my mind was opened, and I had to evaluate what I knew as I took in what new knowledge was presented before me. And this is something I wondered and wanted to process before putting it out in the atmosphere for me to talk about with my group. But two-part question, how they felt learning about black history, civil rights in America alongside a majority white audience, or even learning about blackness in America with only four other black women. These are two separate ideas, both of which were vital in my processing and development of how I experienced our week together. I grew to love it for what it sparked in me intellectually and personally. Most days after we experience whatever we have for the day, we had a dialogue or conversation or we recapped the days, we came back together and recapped the days that we hadn't met. The pictures I chose here to present to you all this evening were some of the most formative moments of this trip based on the conversations we had, reflections, emotions, a lot of thoughts where our group honestly told us that they didn't know that certain things happened in America. But then I think about my own experience at U of M in classrooms where we talk about different experiences and things that are going on today or have happened recently. And students say, I've never heard of the Dylan Roof shooting. I never knew that this happened in this part of the world. And at first, it's, to me, it sounds crazy. Like, how, how do you not know that certain things are going on or certain things haven't happened during your lifetime or in the past, which isn't so far, so far gone, but that's our reality that we live in, where some of us know, some of us don't. On this trip, I learned about things that I didn't know myself, and I had to give others grace because I can't ridicule somebody else for not knowing something when I also don't know some things myself. These pictures that I'm going to share with you capture those moments for me, the moments that were challenging, jarring, where I was conflicted, and I cried. One of those experiences is that of seeing Medgar Evers home. He was a U.S. Army veteran of World War II, instrumental to the civil rights movement in many ways, worked on the investigation on the death of Emmett Till and did a lot of work surrounding voting rights. In the week leading up to his death, he received more and more threats and attempts on his life. He was able to buy land and build his home from the ground up and, and structure his home in a way that would help him and his family to survive. He covered his roof in material that was fire retardant. And so if someone walked on it, they would also be alerted that someone was on their roof and they could take cover. The bed sat below the window so that they could not get shot through the windows while they were asleep. The backyard was blocked off from public view, and the driveway was built so that he could go right into the house in the house door from the car door. 
The day President John F. Kennedy gave a speech in support of civil rights, Mr. Evers wearily got out of his car on the side opposite of the house's entrance, abnormal from his normal routine of going into the house from the left, from the, from the side of the car that is right next to the house door. The porch light was on and it typically left off at night to avoid being seen from anybody that could be watching him. He was carrying NAACP t-shirts that stated, Jim Crow must go. Evers was struck in the back with a bullet that ricocheted into his home and died 50 minutes later at the local hospital. Many in our group shared how crazy it was to live in such a way that he did, head always on a swivel, constantly mindful of his surroundings, what he would see more than once if he was being followed and noticing something that was unfamiliar on his way home. But this is the reality of black life. And this is the America that I live in, where I was taught to get in, to get out of my car on the side as close to the house door so I could go right in and avoid being attacked from the side. To be, to constantly look in my rearview mirror as I'm driving to make sure I'm not being followed by anyone, take a different route home than what I'm used to taking just to switch it up a little bit so that no one can figure out how I go home every day and follow me by any chance. This and so much more was something that was my reality, my normal, but to America, this is not normal. Another experience we shared was meeting Miss Elizabeth Eckford of Little Rock Nine. Little Rock Nine was a group of African-American students to be the first to integrate the high school, Little Rock Central High School, in 1957. A federal judge ordered integration in Little Rock, Arkansas, but current Governor Orville Fabus, in defiance of the order, called out the Arkansas National Guard the night before. The NAACP arranged for the African-American students to be escorted to school on the day after Governor Fabus' speech. Miss Eckford's home did not have a phone and was not informed of the plan. She is pictured in this very well-known photo, wearing the dress that, wearing this white dress, it was covered in spit of protesters outside of the building that she was not allowed to enter. This group, Little Rock Nine, suffered abuse, unfair treatment, and more for so many others to have a chance at equal education. Ms. Eckford is pictured on the right in the pictures that I'm in, and another student, I'm, well, I apologize. Ms. Eckford is pictured on the right next to me, and another student to come after Ms. Eckford is pictured next to Zainab, Dr. Sybil Hampton Jordan. They suffered a great deal for me to have access to education today. Suffering from PTSD and trauma, all I could do was hug and thank Ms. Elizabeth Eckford and every trailblazer I met who made my life today possible because of their struggle. We visited the Slave Haven Museum, Underground Railroad Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, we were able to stand where enslaved Africans escaping to freedom once hit out for days to months at a time. I could have been where one of my ancestors once stood and establishing that connection to my past was life changing. We also visited the Legacy Museum and Lynching Memorial, which are both parts of Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit organization that provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons. They challenge the death penalty and excessive punishment they work with marginalized communities and are committed to changing the narrative about race in America. The Legacy Museum sits on the site of a former warehouse where black people were enslaved in Montgomery, Alabama. This narrative museum captures the domestic slave trade, racial terrorism, the Jim Crow South and the world's largest prison system, investigating America's history of racial injustice and its legacy, making it clear that slavery never went away, but evolved into mass incarceration, a form of modern day slavery, allowing racial inequality to legally prevail. In this museum, I was able to see myself and reflect on where I saw in this narrative. What am I going to do about the narrative so that these statistics no longer exist? But I also had to wonder how everyone else in the room felt about what they saw. 
pictured here is National Memorial for Peace and Justice. More than 4,400 African-American men, women, and children have been hanged, burned alive, shot, drowned, and beaten to death by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. Until this memorial was erected, there has been no national memorial acknowledging the victims of racial terror lynching. Montgomery is where I felt most of the weight of this trip. No movie, article, or story could amount to the pain, torture, and suffering that was felt from the individuals memorialized here. Their names will never know. This wall reads, thousands of African Americans are unknown victims of racial terror lynching whose deaths cannot be documented, many whose names will never be known. They are all mourned here. Saying all of these things to say that although it's hard, we need not fault one another for what we don't know. It can be difficult to understand what privilege really is when you're born into it. And there are so many societal standards that prohibit us from having certain conversations or being comfortable with asking questions or seeking a deeper understanding. I came into this experience with my guard up, reminding myself every hour to keep the mindset of what I was taught when navigating the world as a black woman to protect myself mentally and emotionally. But I took away an even wider lens of understanding around how we should be working together to manifest the dream of freedom. It is so often said that as black people, we shouldn't be responsible for educating people on our history or experiences. But I will challenge that because no one has ever made a difference by being like everyone else. So my question is, when are we, the ones that care so deeply to make our history known our lives matter, going to start educating other people on that? So often we, we, tell, we tell other people that it's not my responsibility to be the one to educate. So when we are so passionate about this, we should be the ones that are willing to help someone else to learn. To be one of the only black people in a space is draining and doing this work individually is backbreaking. But if we work collectively to find a place for everyone to work and learn and fight, it is achievable. This wasn't light work for any one of us. It still isn't, but it's necessary. Asada Shakur said, Nobody in the world, nobody in history has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. There are people like Trump and so many others in global power whom this quote is referring to, which is why we must be willing to educate and be patient with the people who are showing a desire and effort to learn more and be a support. We can't allow them to default to widely embrace ethics. We need to help them learn, help others, and make a difference. Working with people regardless of their skin color is a necessary aspect of life we must reconcile with in order to heal, help, and progress individually as well as collectively. She also said, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chain. Racism has affected black people directly. but It is what weighs down our nation and our world. My people have worked for centuries to make this our reality. And we have tried and are still trying so many different avenues to see this through. But among many things this trip taught me is that racism and its byproducts must continue to be reconciled with educating ourselves, raising our consciousness, pouring into our communities, among many other things, and encourage and inspire our neighbors, regardless of their skin color, to do the same. May we never forget all those who suffered and died because they asserted their basic human right to be free. It is our job to continue this work together. Thank you for the moment to share my moments with you from this experience. I just want to take a breath right now. Zainab, Ashley, thank you for helping us see this trip through your eyes. Thank you for putting words to your reflections and your feelings. This trip was hard. I, I hear that from you. It was hard. 
but yet there's so much growth and um and and beautiful human courage that we witnessed and um that was both of your uh reflections were stunning thank you thank you so much i i want to talk about your educations you're both educated in african american history and yet this trip to the south allowed you to step into history and i'm wondering if there was a chasm there for you or how you were able to marry the two together if you feel like your education uh, gave you a good foundation for this trip? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Zainab? Yeah, I can go. Um, I'd say my education in um, studying African-American studies, being part of the studies of ethnic being part of the tradition of ethnic studies, the Third World World Liberation Front, being part of academic struggle um, was essential um, to processing and asking at least the right questions for myself throughout the trip. Uh, I concentrated in arts and media, so I spent more time dealing with poetry, looking at films and TV shows, in undergraduate, in my undergraduate career compared to having a historical focus. And so this was very beautiful to really fill in and add depth to things I learned in some of my uh, general education requirements for my major. Despite studying African-American studies, there still are so many gaps in what I know, who I know as figures. Uh, I talk very briefly about it in my presentation, but there's such a focus on Malcolm, on King, if someone's well-versed enough, Medgar. uh, But the woman that we talked to on the trip, um, so many other people, they are a part of this conversation and this history, uh, but they're they're treated as footnotes, as something that's hidden at at the back of the book. And uh, that was frustrating. Uh, I think the trip, and my education, it showed me that there's still a lot I need to learn. There's a lot I need to study. And so it's been motivating to give me a direction of what else do I need to know? Uh, what else is there to read outside of the canon, even in Black studies? I would say yes, short answer. But long answer, longer answer is um, there are so many people that will say African-American studies shouldn't be a major. Um, but African Americans say so much more than just knowing facts. It's about understanding people, understanding history, to understand our reality. And it's beyond what I could have imagined going on this trip compared to my in class experience. I believe so much more learning happens outside of the classroom where the things that I've learned, the experiences I've had in fact with other students and hearing their perspectives on things, being looked to as the person that can provide a genuine opinion because I have the lived experience when blackness is so much wider than just one individual. Um, having gone this, this trip has definitely built off of that experience. So I've been able to apply some of my learning in the classroom to real life. 
And again, minoring in education as well has helped in this experience too, with being able to look at it through an education lens and, and to learn about things that deal with education, African-Americans and how we are oppressed, how we are um, underserved in that area of life, what we can do to make that difference and close that gap. Because in high school and middle school, elementary school is limited to one month, picking a person, talking about them, learning about facts and sharing that with your classmates. But African-American history is real life. It's about the lived experiences. It's about the suffering that we endure. And it's about how we're trying to make that difference. And I think that this trip truly highlighted what that looks like and how that's played out in reality. reality. Mm-hmm. You know, you, Zainab, you mentioned that, and Ashley, you know, Black History Month, we talk about the same five people every year. It doesn't matter how old you are. That's the lesson that continues from elementary on. And yet we met incredible, incredible people um, who their courage just abounds, that they survive so much. I, I think of Carolyn McKinstry, who was at, uh, um, at the 16th Avenue Baptist Church. Elizabeth Eckford, Dr. Sybil Hampton, the women that we met. Talk to me about your connection as young women to these women who have endured so much, and yet they've come out the other side. Does it give you a different perspective? Does it give you a sense of of survival, of hope, of talk to me about that? Ashley, go ahead. Yeah, so I I would say that... um, Seeing them has shown me that I can do it too. That I can step up and that I can step up and make a difference and speak up and speak out. So often, the voice of women go unheard of in the civil rights movement. It's always pictures of the men that you see having been, done things or a few key women in this movement. But women were the ones planning things. Women were the ones organizing things, and men were the ones on the front lines that you saw most often. But women were the ones riding the buses to and from work. They were the ones that had to walk everywhere when the buses were being boycotted and were very heavily impacted during that moment. So to see people that have lived this experience and are still here to tell the story shows me that this work is not in vain, that it's not impossible because they were in one time period doing work that needed to be done so that we could live in this time period and have much more than what they had been. So it's our responsibility as young women today to continue on that work, especially being women that are passionate about it and seeing Seeing the, seeing the ones that have paved the way for us to continue to widen that road, I think has been, it's been tremendous to meet people that have done that and could, could say that they are a woman too. And not just, it's, all, it's only men that do this work. Only men can be presidents. Only men can run, can run organizations and be the faces of different industries or movements. But women, women do it all, so. Yes, we do. Zainab, would you care to comment? Yeah, I I completely agree. I think when you look at revolutionary, when you look at uh, radical organizations, who are the faces? Men. But who is doing the logistics? Who is writing the speeches? Who is doing the organizing? It's women. It's trans women. It's non-binary people. It's queer people. Uh, I think it confirmed that the erasure we see in current movements, especially with Black Lives Matter, with the three founders continually uh, still being afterthoughts and having the movement be attributed to men instead, this behavior is not new. Uh, I think it shows that there needs to be a more concerted effort. We need to think 
beyond binaries while also acknowledging, I think, the way that patriarchy informs who we see as valid leaders. Uh, I, it was inspiring to, to know that women have always been doing this work. Um, it was beautiful to be able to also tell them um, today that their work had an impact on me, their work made it possible for me to be in the spaces that I am today. So uh, in inspiring to say the least. Both had some private moments um, with, uh, with Ms. Eckford and Ms. Hampton. So, and that's what you discussed was they're cutting, carving a path for all of the rest of us to follow. Definitely. That, that was the first thing I said to both of them, that I would not have been able to get my college degree, to be given scholarships, to be given the opportunities I was afforded in my undergraduate career. Uh, considering years ago, you couldn't even enter, a, I, someone like me, I couldn't even enter a high school. Um, it it's it's sad because this is not even like two three gener like this is we're one generation removed from this um and so just how how recent this was uh for them to have made such a dramatic change in the educational system in 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 every system um that that's all i could say to them just thank you mm. there is change afoot in this movement that is the result of, of people being tired of watching black bodies fall to the ground, people being shot, killed. Um, we're watching corporations come to the forefront and apologize and to offer assistance, offer money. Uh, I, I want to tie that into the apology that we heard in the Sumner Courthouse the apology from the city of, well, the Sumner City Council to Emmett Till and, and the family of Emmett Till. Um, when we were at the Interpretive Center, uh, where two of his murderers were tried and acquitted, in 2015, you'll remember, um, they gather, people gathered together to, to apologize to Emmett Till. Do these apologies, the ones that we see today, um, the ones that we saw regarding Emmett Till, do they, do they have, a, can, they, can they have an impression? Do they have a lasting impression? Do they have an impact? Do they matter? Does it mean anything? I would say we don't want apologies. We want acknowledgments of where the wrongs were done and a change in the systems that have done those wrongs. So if you're a corporation, if you're an organization that is apologizing, what, how, how much is your apology worth when you aren't changing what was done or, or what's in place to allow certain things to happen? And it's the same, the same for the government. I have never heard the government apologizing for racism in America near in 2020. I have not heard of what they're going to do as a national entity to fix what has happened, well, not, we can't fix it because it's already done, but how, how are we going to move forward in a way that's equitable, that's meaningful, and that matters, not just for Black people, but for our entire country so that we can continue to progress as a nation. We have not acknowledged racism, and I think that's something that Brian Stevenson's um, EJI is trying to do, is acknowledge what has happened in our country, and it took a Black man to do it, and um, 
to acknowledge to acknowledge what our country has done to, to our people and how we are trying to move forward from it, but it requires so much more work on the parts of others to decide an apology. And like, we appreciate you saying it, but how? But what does your apology actually mean when you aren't doing what needs to be done to show that you're sorry? I see you shaking your head, Zainab. Yeah, definitely. I think there's too much of a obsession in America with the aesthetics of apology, of anti-racism, it's, you 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 saw it with the black square that went viral on Instagram, pushing everything to the bottom. You see it today. I mean, in response to what's happening uh, in Kenosha, everyone makes very pretty posts saying "Black lives do matter" without any monetary contributions, without figuring out how they can donate to local funds. It's about signaling. It's not about making an actual change um which is disappointing with in the case of Emmett Till it meant nothing to me it wasn't a real apology it felt a way you seem to be frozen here Ashley can you hear me Zainab all right going to wait for Zainab to come back, but I will continue on. I have some uh, viewer questions. Uh, this is from Richard Sakai. He asks, are you optimistic or not for the change in light of the current state of things? Or will there be another period of the same old story and a lot of discussion and not action? And also from Brenda Yost, who wants to know if, um, if this time in our history in light of all that has gone on um, most recently, if you think that young people will be engaged enough to participate in the political process and will they vote? will Is your generation stepping in and stepping up into that leadership role that we have left this void for you to, to do so? Okay, so to answer the first question, we don't have a choice but to be optimistic or else there wouldn't be any work to be done. Like, I feel that it's important for us to remain hopeful, to remain encouraged and to remain optimistic or else we wouldn't be motivated to do the work in the first place. So I, I also think about how in the 1960s during the civil rights movement, were they optimistic? They had to be. And they, that optimism and that drive got us where we are today. So we have to maintain that heart and encourage one another through realizing that this work is not in vain, through looking at the progress that we have made, even though it's not as far as we would have liked it to be, it has to continue on. So yes, I am optimistic because I don't have a choice but to be. I don't have a choice but to but to keep the energy, but to keep up the fight, but to encourage and educate and to work however best I can to make my mark, excuse me, to make my mark and to continue to make space in the world for us to continue on this work. Um, second part of the question, I am in no way able to speak for my entire generation because my generation, as you probably know, is something totally different. My generation, they're they're feeling one way one day and they're itchy the next. Um, people are voting for Kanye West. I can't, again, I don't want to represent that gen- generation at all right now, but in my voting, the answer is yes. Am I encouraging other people to vote? The answer is yes, um, because that is one way to exercise our right. And again, an- another reason, sometimes, Folks can feel that voting is in vain, but a reason why I do choose to vote is because 
people paved the way for people have died for me to have a chance to go to the polls. So yes, I'm going to use the feet that I have to walk to the polls or to use the hands that I have to write my answers on my absentee ballot and send it in or drop it off at the box. Because if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have that chance. I don't want to abuse that gift that has been given to me without having to work hard for it. But people have walked, have been beaten, have been ridiculed, have been abused for trying to exercise the right that was supposedly given to them at one point in time. But yes. um, my generation, are they voting? A lot of us are trying. <laughs> a lot of us are trying to help people vote. I don't want to say vote correctly because everybody has the right to vote for who they want to vote for. But um, I would definitely say that we are a people, there are some of us, a good number of us that are trying to get the knowledge to disseminate to other people, to those that don't have access to the amount of knowledge that I do. Being at the University of Michigan, trying to say back to my own community to share with my family, to share with the, my friends that may not know how to do certain things. Or so often I forget that Google has a lot of answers. So I, I'm waiting to ask a person when I could type it up myself. So. I encourage everybody to do that. If you can, if you have questions, Google, call on a friend and get those answers so that we can make that happen. Thank you. Zainab, uh, while you were gone, uh, hi, thanks to technology, we were talking about, um, about voting and Ashley shared that, you know what, people have died and been beaten mercilessly for our right to vote. And, and to that end, we... We went to the Lorraine Motel. We walked across the Selma, the bridge in Selma, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where um, where Bloody Sunday occurred. And and I'm wondering, as you 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 stepped on that bridge, what were you thinking? Were you thinking about the the steps taken all those many years ago by so many people, so many times, um, in order for us to to be able to walk across there safely today and to do what we're able to do as, as black Americans. Uh, definitely. I think this year was uh, the 50th anniversary that they crossed the bridge. Um, and there was a huge celebration a couple months prior, maybe in January. Um, even before I stepped on the, on the bridge, me and Ashley actually lagged behind because we ran into someone that was there on bloody Sunday, George Sally. he, was there uh, with people who had locally created their own guidebook to the civil rights movement. They were talking to us about it. George Sally even lifted his cap, showing us a scar on his forehead where he was beaten with a, with a club. Um, talking to us just about how many times he got on the bridge, marching back and forth and back and forth. And so, um, yeah, it was... It, it, it's in my heart, um, the, the feeling of crossing it, imagining uh, just what, what violence uh, was inflicted on people to, to cross such a short amount of feet. It was, I thought the bridge was longer <laughs> based on pictures, even based on the movie Selma. Um, but we were crossing in like two minutes. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is, this is uh, it that, you know, white America made such a, a, a riot about crossing this bridge, um, of course, for what it represented. Um, but still, um, very moving, very unfortunate that we're still doing the same type of marches today endlessly. 
uh, for many of the same things that they did in the 60s. We also were at the Lorraine Motel, and we were able to look into the bedroom that Dr. King slept in uh, the night before he was murdered there. Ashley, are you frozen? Can you hear me? Um, I can hear you now. I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts were. I mean, we've all, every Black History Month, you know, the speeches of Dr. King and, and, and he was so important, but it's different, I think, to see that, that space. Is that, is that a fair recollection, Ashley? Can you, can you say the beginning of your question again? I missed that part, but I heard everything else. We were at the Lorraine Motel where we were able to look into the room where Dr. King slept the night before he was murdered. And, you know, there were ashtrays with cigarettes. There was a suitcase. The bed was unmade. I mean, it's even though every every Black History Month that, you know, he populates most of the information, but did it... Did, did seeing that make make his life and his death different for you? I would say all that, seeing that place, but also um, seeing his home as well, was it all brought so much more knowledge to me and understanding or just a different perspective of him than, of course, what you read about or what you hear about and what you constantly talk about referring to Martin Luther King. Um, so it definitely, it made a difference for me in how I viewed his life, but for the better. It gave more meaning to it in a way where we saw more of his speeches. We heard more about the work that he's done and the places he's been and his overall purpose in his work. I think that seeing the place where he was shot and killed, um, it often, the story of Martin Luther King reminds me of a movie that we watch in elementary school every MLK weekday that we had um, called our friend, I believe it was called our friend Martin. It was a cartoon where the students would go back in time and see Martin's life um, from childhood to middle age to adult. Well, he he died middle age, but to see from his childhood to his twenties to before he passed away. Um, In that experience, we saw that over and over again every year but it still meant something for me to kind of make a connection to his life from where I stand and to be where he once was, be where a lot of people once were, um, has definitely changed my mind about how I see my history, how I experience it when I interact with the text or interact with media or see firsthand where these experiences took place. Thank you. You're both leaders in your in your communities, your respective communities. And Zainab, I want to ask you um, how this trip and and the people that you met and were able to speak with and the, the conditions that you saw as well, the unchanged conditions specifically in Greenwood where your grandmother uh, grew up. Um, I'm wondering how this will populate your leadership style moving forward, especially, especially in this time? Uh, It really underscored for me the need for intergenerational organizing. We often say the youth are the future and they are, uh, but they shouldn't be left to blindly to just try to innovate resistance 
without any support, without context. We already know that the public school, the private school system is a failure. There's so much history that is willingly withheld from um, children in America because they know to give you this information would radicalize you. I mean, why else is TikTok getting banned? Because people are doing that education there. Um, people now with cell phones are able to study older movements and see that in the 60s, they're making many of the same mistakes that movements today are. I think we really need to talk to our elders um, and learn about what did they do right? What did they do wrong? What broke apart coalitions? What does surveillance mean? All these things, it, it, it's an endless cycle. I think too often in organizing spaces and leadership spaces, we try to invent the wheel um, and it is unfortunately a waste of time. Um, and it's hard for a lot of young leaders to hear. I think they want to be innovative. They want to, you know, charge and pave a new path um, to be the first. Uh, but I think it's unnecessary. I think pe we need to ask more questions about pe two people who've, who've been around these spaces before, uh, before really plummeting into it. Um, I think that that's what I'm hoping to change about the way that I operate, the way that I mentor, the way that I learn. Ashley, I'd ask you the same question. You're um, still at the university. You're involved in your sorority, student life, um, your church group, your community. How will this impact your leadership? Overall, aside from what Zainab said of working intergenerationally to make a difference and to pursue greater pursuits than what was done in the past, I would say acknowledging that this work is bigger than me. It's bigger than what I'm trying to do for my life, for my family, for my future, but realizing that it's impact, it can impact the world, that seeing these things, exposing myself to knowledge like this, sharing it with other people, you never know how it could change someone's life. And that's really all there is to it for me is how I'm making a difference in the lives of others when it comes to leading because being a leader is I, I prefer to be a servant leader than just being the one out front doing the work this is my space that's it I see leading as being an example of what making a difference truly looks like but also utilizing the strength and the knowledge and the guidance of other people in that effort so in order to, to truly make an impact it requires working for the benefit of all and not just selfishly trying to gain knowledge to say, I know this fact, or I can write this paper, I can make this speech, but how it's truly impacting the world around us and the work that we do. I'm, you both just make me so hopeful. I know that sounds condescending and I don't mean it to, but um, I'm really grateful for your, your passion for life. You, this, the space that you stand in as black women uh, and and how you move through the world and I I'm wondering if you could share with us before we go um, just final reflections or um, anything that that moved you that you've not spoken about um, anything that still sits with you that you think about from our trip and um, just you know a, a, a final reflection and, you know, something that you, I guess I'm looking for something that you hold on to for hope in, in these 
incredibly tumultuous, tumultuous times. Zainab? I'd say um, the thing that I that comes back to my mind again and again is when we pulled up to the storefront that uh, Emmett, uh, Emmett Till allegedly whistled at a woman at uh, making the wolf call, uh, whatever you want to call it. That I think just seeing the that ones those those dried roses taped to the building falling apart. I walked around the back to try to look inside, um, just glass, brick, all covering the floor. Um, I, I just can't get that out of my mind because that is such an instrumental location, um, you know, to the civil rights movement, even to this day, um, the way that we we remember his life and the allegations and the lies. Um, I think because of how young he was, I mean, he, he makes me think of Tamirai Sakia, Akila, who was um, shot while sleeping in her family's home. Just the, the amount of children that were seen as sacrifices, um, or maybe not sacrifices, but they didn't see the humanity of them. I think that never leaves me to know that there's just such a way that young black children are seen as adults even to this day uh, really breaks my heart. But with that, I think seeing all, visiting all the museums that we did, especially uh, the Legacy Museum that EGI um, owns, it was outstanding to see technology and art merged in the way that it was and to see that there is a desire from funders and artists and curators to create institutions and spaces that celebrate the breadth of this history, that there are artists creating films, writing out the breadth and the nuance of this history, not just focusing on tired tales of slavery, not that we have already explored the breadth of what terror happened then, but it's inspiring to know that people are thinking of what are new ways that can we tell this story? What stories have we not told yet? Um, as someone who wants to build a career doing films, taking photos, knowing that there's such beautiful work that exists out there and there's gonna be so much more beauty in the way that we understand the 60s and in the way that we understand the, the, the movement, the insurrections happening right now. I think that makes me really hopeful, especially all the young people feeling empowered in their voice and their creativity to contribute and to, to call for change. Thank you. Thank you. Ashley? What sticks with me the most is that we cannot set limits on what's achievable, on what is possible to get done looking back at all that we've experienced on this trip, seeing where we are today, and knowing that there's so much more to be done, it leaves, it, you can either be less hopeless, or you can be less energized to, to do it, to take it on. And it's important to not limit ourselves to what could be the outcome or what we're aiming to reach for, but hoping for 
more than what we could imagine when it comes to the possibility of making a difference and improving the life, the lives of all, for, for all of us, um, not limiting the possibility of what's possible when it comes to fighting against racism or gaining rights and freedom for all people in America, not setting limits on the expectations you have of other people. When I came into this trip, again, mindful of the fact that I'm taught to act one way around white people so that I can be okay and go home at the end of the day. Um, while I still, I cannot shake those expectations because of the reality that is America, um, it was very eye-opening and it, it meant a lot to me that to interact with people for the first time in such a majority white space, well, Michigan is a primarily white space. I don't interact across the entire campus. I have certain communities I'm a, I'm a part of or I work with certain groups. Uh, so I make the campus a lot smaller, but to be in a space where people don't look like me, people don't talk like me or think like me, and they still are able to show you love, care, respect, and honesty, I think that was very eye-opening for me because I don't interact a lot with people that don't look like me because of where I'm from. And because of where I'm from, I choose to find, to seek out people that I can't, that I can't identify with racially or in my faith walk and connect with them in order to continue to do work. But I, I find myself not, find myself not trying to limit my imagination anymore for what is possible and realizing that if we do limit ourselves, then we're going to come up short when it comes to what we can do for one another, for our own communities, and for our country. Uh, I think a, a question a question that I was asked a while ago was, am I proud to be an American or call America my home? And that question was hard to answer. It seems like there is no right answer being a Black woman. And I had to recognize I appreciate America for allow for they didn't allow us to really do much because they fought us really hard to get work done but for being a place that calls itself land of the free home of the brave which gives us the grounds and the rights to say we are going to act out of bravery to pursue our freedom and we see that that has happened over time it took a lot it's taking a lot still today it's taking lives it's taking energy it's taking our health it's taking our money um but it's a fight that we cannot give up on. And I think by not limiting ourselves to what we can do or what we should do is allowing us to prevail and to continue and to keep the hope that we will continue to move forward in a positive direction with what's going on today and what all has happened in our past. Zainab, Abdul, Kadir, Morris, Ashley Hayes, you are your ancestors' wildest dreams. You truly are, and I'm just so grateful that Cinnamon Girl brought you uh, to us so that we could travel together, and your experiences, your reflections, they're vital to what this country needs to hear regarding the pain that we have suffered, and yet we're not looking for anything but a way out and into a better life. African descendants deserve to be seen, to be heard, to be loved, to love, to move through this country freely and easily. And I continue to um, be uplifted by the strength and the courage 
of young people like you who have taken the time to know their history and to, um, and to lead and to share that information and to, to help others grow. And so thank you so much for all that you've done for us tonight, this afternoon, and um, coming to us from the University of Michigan, Ashley, and Zainab here in the Bay Area. This has been really lovely. Uh, they are inspiring, aren't they? I, I, I feel so fortunate to have traveled with them and the entire group on our tour. I'd like to thank you for joining us, um, for your questions, for your participation, for viewing, and for your ongoing activism in creating change in this country. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in creating virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Dana King, and I have enjoyed being with you this evening. And now this program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.